are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. This evening we continue working through the book of Leviticus, the third book of our Bibles. The book of Leviticus, we find ourselves in chapter 19. So if you have a copy of God's word, I invite you to turn there with me this evening. This great book, and I hope you now think it's a great book after spending some time in it. We saw the first half of it was about how God draws us to himself, how we as sinful people can approach a holy God. It's by his grace, by his appointed sacrifice on our behalf. And we approach a holy God and and we don't just approach a holy God and stand there. But now we see in the second part of the book, we walk with this God. Our life is walked in his presence before his face. And so last time we saw this command, be holy as I, the Lord, your God, am holy. We're called to holiness as we walk with God. And now as this chapter continues, we are walking with God's people. What does it look like to walk with God and his people? And we have this wonderful passage. It's probably the place we would least expect this great command that's reiterated here for us, that we are called to love our neighbor as ourselves. So let's turn now to God's word. Leviticus 19, we'll read uh, starting in verse nine through verse 18. And if you have a pew Bible, it begins on page 97. Hear now the word of the Lord from Leviticus 19, beginning in verse nine. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyards bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your hearts, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Love may be the most misunderstood concept in our world today. Granted, the English word love is a nuanced term with many different kinds of meanings depending on the context. I love baseball is a very different statement from I love Erica, my wife. Very different meanings. We could catalog the way the world talks about love, especially between humans, as an emotional feeling exclusively. 
This feeling that two humans might feel for each other, or at least one has for another, it can't be wrong. It must be affirmed. It cannot be denied. But when God commanded Israel through Moses and commands us through Moses, when God commanded us as Christ reiterated these very words to love your neighbor, it brings up a fundamentally different understanding of love from this emotional sensation. The command to love your neighbor ends the section we just read, but it helps us go back and interpret the entire section. The entire section is an exposition of what does it mean? What does it look like practically to love our neighbor? And in fact, that's what Jesus says the whole law is about. The whole law is about loving God. It tells us how do we love God? By obeying the law. And then a subset of it is how do we love our neighbor? And commands five through 10. It's telling us how do we love our neighbor. And then God goes into more detail here in Leviticus as it continues to expound how do we love our neighbor as ourselves. Much of what we read here actually applies directly to us today. And we'll, we'll work through uh, the passage and see how some of it may not apply directly in the same way it applied to ancient Israel. But Jesus is quoting right off of the page of Leviticus. And so it comes directly to us. A true Christian love for others is a call for us to acknowledge, honor, and respect the dignity that every person intrinsically possesses because they are the image of God. Let me say that again. A true Christian love for others is a call for us to acknowledge, honor, and respect the dignity that every person intrinsically possesses because they are the image of God. We're called to do this for all of our neighbors, from the most close relationships we have of your spouse and your children, your parents and your family, to every person on the outer edges of your sphere of influence. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus tells that parable in response to, again, another attorney who says, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, it's even the man who's beaten beside the street that you don't know from Adam. That man is your neighbor. Anybody in your sphere of influence is your neighbor. You're called to love them as yourself. That's an interesting word phraseology though. How do you love somebody as yourself? That's, that's always interested me. I think it means maybe, maybe two things. First, love doesn't mean that you deny your own dignity and value in God's eyes. You've heard this phrase about humility, and I think it applies to love as well, but humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less, right? Humility isn't demeaning yourself. Love isn't demeaning yourself, but it's thinking of myself less. How can I care about others first? So it prioritizes this love, but also loving your neighbor as yourself helps us have a baseline for what love is for somebody else. Because of course we know our own needs. We know our own wants. We know what it feels like to be dignified, and to be not dignified. And so we care for ourselves and thus we know innately a general sense of, of how to dignify somebody else. We're called to do what we would desire. We're called to do that for others. And this, of course, is what the golden rule is. We are to do unto others as you would have them do for you. We know what it feels like to be dignified. So we're called to do that same thing for others. Treat others with the same dignity that you yourself deserve. 
being made in God's image. It's interesting, we don't often think of love as fundamental to holiness, but that's exactly the context God puts love in here. Love is a fundamental to what it means to be holy. So we saw last time, be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. Part of that is now love. To love one another, that is fundamental to walking with God, is walking in love with God's people. Our holiness isn't just about worshiping God, as if that's only a small part of our life. It's about our whole life, our whole being, especially how we love others. So we see in this passage, being loved by God first, we love our neighbors. This passage works through five requirements of love, five things love requires. And we'll work through these rather quickly. We won't belabor them. But if you're reading in the ESV, uh, each paragraph is broken up rather well. And we're going to take each paragraph as one item, uh, one thing that love requires. And this is not all-encompassing, speaking about love. But these are just five things that are targeted here in Leviticus 19. So let's look at these five things that love requires. And first, looking at verse 9 and 10, is sacrifice. Love requires sacrifice. The command in verse 9 and 10 is to leave some of your harvest in the field. Leave some of the grapes on your vineyard. Don't pick up every single piece. Leave something for the poor to come along and to glean from your land. You know the story of Ruth and how she benefited from this. Somebody who had nothing, the Lord kindly provided for the poor by giving them wheat and vineyards and produce that they could glean from others' fields. That God is providing not just for you, but for others through you. And that's the core of this. God's provision for you is intended to bless others. And we, so we give of what we have to help the poor. I think this is a, a wonderful and an interesting example in the ancient Israelite context of what love looks like. And this is one of those examples where it doesn't come one-to-one -to, -one to us today. But this principle of, of giving what you have to the poor, it's, it's fascinating because what this does is it dignifies the poor by allowing them to work for what they get. It calls them to work. It's not a free handout. It's calling them to work, to come and glean from the field, from the edges of the field or the leftovers in the middle. They're called to work, to dignify them, and then allowing them to have sustenance because of it. So how do we apply this to us today? We don't live in an agrarian society. And if you leave a few of your tomatoes on the vine or a couple of your cucumbers out in the garden, it's going to do nobody any good. So I don't recommend that. But the point here is that love calls us to sacrifice. Love is not about hoarding our resources, holding it tight, building bigger barns for me. Love is about using what I have to bless others to sacrifice my resources, even for the poor we don't know. And particularly as we look at Israel, particularly as for God's covenant community, we're to use our resources to bless others, the poor in God's covenant community. So first, love requires of us sacrifice. Second, verses 11 and 12, love requires truth. Let me read these verses. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my, by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So love requires the promotion of truth between people. 
Stealing is pretending I own something I don't own. It's lying about it. Lying is an attempt to gain an advantage over somebody else by distorting reality. Using God's name falsely profanes his holiness. Take something sacred and, and drags it through the mud. Truth is to be promoted between man and man. And for us, it is a reminder. These, these words pro, do apply to us directly, but it's a reminder that we cannot be cavalier with the truth. We cannot manipulate the truth for our own ends. Reality is not yours to try to control and manipulate. The truth is the truth. And we always do better to acknowledge the truth, even to our own hurt, than to distort it. In fact, distorting the truth, what it ends up doing is tell somebody else they're less than human. I'm willing to dehumanize you by distorting the truth. I care less about you than I do about my own good. So distorting the truth is dehumanizing to others and it profanes God's name. So love demands, it requires of us truth. Third, let's look at verses 13 and 14. Love requires respect. And the command is, is at its core this, I think. Do not take advantage of the vulnerable. You are called to respect them, not take advantage of vulnerable people. There's a couple specific commands. The first one is do not oppress anyone. Don't oppress them by using your authority or power to, again, dehumanize them, to rob them, to take from them what is rightly theirs. But recognize their dignity and respect. Respect them as is due to image bearers. Verse 13, the second command here in this uh, in these two verses is, is listed for us. And it speaks of the wages of a hired worker are to be paid not the next day, but that very day. When you have a hired worker, and often in, in the ancient Israelite context, people looking for, for day work would come to the city center and people looking for work that day, they would come and say, hey, I need three men come to my field. I need 12 men come to my field. And they were expected to be paid that day because they needed that money to provide for their family that day. And so what God tells Israel is, no, don't take advantage of them by saying, oh, wait, I'll wait till the morning to pay you. Don't take advantage of them by holding from them what is rightfully theirs. They need that money now. They need to provide for their family. Don't hold it over them. Give them what is rightfully theirs. And again, this is one that I wouldn't say applies to us directly today, but I think the, even the Ohio law recognizes this fundamental dignity. It requires all employers in the state of Ohio to pay their employees at least twice a month. You must pay, be paid twice a month in the state of Ohio. Why? Because you, your employer is not allowed to sit on wages you have earned. They're yours. And a Christian employer is always to look out for the needs of his employees and not withhold payment so as to cause injury. And then the final command here in this third point is in verse 14. And it is this, do not curse a deaf person because you think they're not going, because you think you can get away with it because they won't know that you curse them. Don't trip a blind person because you can get away with it and they won't know that you did it. How horrible that is. How shocking that would be to shove over a blind person. But we need that reminder, don't we? To not take advantage of people and their weaknesses and vulnerabilities, but to respect them and honor them. 
How many of us have used the weakness of a person against them, exploited a disability, some other weakness, or their inability to determine who has hurt them? Maybe they have no recourse, and so you've been able to harm them. Are we loving our neighbor? Are we honoring the God who made them in his image? No matter if nobody would know, what does this say? Fear God. You are accountable to their maker for how you treat them. You are called to respect and honor and even love all people. They all have dignity from God. There's never justification to take advantage of others. So love requires respect. Fourth, we come to impartiality. Love requires impartiality. This is verses 15 and 16. And this brings us to a legal context. It says, you shall do no injustice in court. The court system should be a just place. Judges should not be, be, show favoritism. People like them. People that they like. The rich should not get favorable treatment. Even the poor shouldn't get favorable treatment because they are poor. Nobody should have favorable treatment. There should be one standard applied to everybody equally. Judging should be done impartially. You shouldn't go around damaging the name of somebody else by slandering them with no opportunity to respond. Walking around through the community slandering. Then it says, if you're called as a witness... You must testify to the truth. It's where this phrase, you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. It's an interesting Hebrew idiom, but the commentators say it fundamentally means if you're called upon to testify against your neighbor, you must say what is true. If you're called upon to testify, you must testify. You can't just get out of it. You must say what is true. You can't go protecting somebody. You can't go trying to get somebody who unjustly. You must testify to the truth. The core of this command is we cannot take advantage of people through the legal system. The scales of justice ought to be blind. There ought to be impartiality, and that is loving our neighbors. A fair system is a way we love everybody. So we should work for that and care for that. Impartiality. Love requires impartiality. And then fifth, love requires confrontation. Verses 17 and 18. Let me read these verses. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. It seems like the context of this this set of commands is in the context of a disagreement between two people. And likely sin of one individual against another. So the question is, when you have this disagreement or when you've been sinned against, what do you do? How do I respond? And God says, when somebody sins against you, one, do not hate your brother. Even if they've sinned against you, even if they've done evil to you. Jesus will even turn this around and say, what do you do to your enemies? You love them. You love your enemies. There's no justification for hating them. You may not do that. But even more than than that, instead of not just being angry, there's a positive command for us when somebody sins against us. And it is this, verse 17, the second half says, reason frankly with that person. It's a, a, a phrase, has a legal sense to it, of argue your case with that person. Or maybe more basically, according to one commentator, establish what is right. 
When somebody has, has harmed you and sinned against you, it is an obligation of yours to confront them. Jesus says this in Matthew 18, does he not? When a brother sins against you, go to him. And if he doesn't respond, then take another witness with you, two or three witnesses to, to speak to this person. Show them their sin. And if they still won't respond, then take the church to them, officially walking them through the steps of discipline. And that's exactly coming from Leviticus. That's exactly what's being spoken of here. When somebody sins against you, we're to go and reason frankly with them. Bring in another witness. Bring in another authority to say, hey, you, what you've done is wrong. It's sinful. We're not taking it to them to be vengeful. We're not taking it to them to, to get them back. But we want them to grow in repentance. We want them to turn from their sin, do we not? But it's interesting how, how the passage says, if we don't do this, you incur sin because of him. If you won't reason frankly with him, if you won't establish what is right, you're incurring sin because of him. And this is fascinating, and everybody likes to, to postulate, what does that mean? That you're incurring sin because of they sin against me? Is that even fair? I think it either means one of two things or maybe both. First, it's sin to not raise the issue and seek your brother's repentance and reconciliation. If you know your brother is, sin, is in sin, it is a sin to not call him from that sin. You are now in sin because you know of his sin and you must go call him out. That is one of God's means. He is appointed to calling us to repentance. All of us loving one another, walking together, saying, brother, you're in sin. Brother, this isn't right. This isn't honoring to God. We're called to confront. Maybe the other reason it's sin is because there's a, a great chance that you will go on harboring sin in your own heart. You're not dealing with the issue. You can harbor resentment and hatred for your brother. Or maybe it's both of these things. Letting them walk in sin and, you're, and you yourself are festering anger and hatred in your heart. Whatever the actual reason is we are called, we must confront our brothers when they're in sin, especially when they've sinned against us. And this section goes on in uh, verse 18. To say, do not take vengeance. Do not bear a grudge. You don't have a right to carry this in your heart, hating this person, bearing this grudge against the person. You don't have the authority to be the judge, jury, and executioner by taking vengeance into your own hands. What does the Lord say? Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. You are not God's agents of vengeance. And yes, we can go through the civil courts. We can come to pray, bring it to the church. There are other opportunities for justice to be done in certain cases. But you in your own hands do not have the right to take vengeance or to bear a grudge. And then wrapping this all up is that great command repeated oh so often. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The one who's sinned against you the one who's done evil to you. What you're calling is not just not hate him. It's to affirmatively love that person. How hard is that? To love your neighbor as yourself. Love requires confrontation of sin. And it is unloving to not address rifts in relationships, especially in the household of God, especially among our brothers and sisters here to go to one another humbly with gentleness and to call one another back and out of our sin into repentance. This is what walking with God looks like in the context of community. We are to sacrifice 
Love requires truth. It requires respect. It requires impartiality. It requires confrontation. This is what holiness looks like among God's people. It's a high standard of love. It is high. But can you imagine what a community that values truth, that values dignity, that values respect, that values confrontation because we hate sin so much and we want to call each other out of it. Imagine what a community like that would look like. What a wonderful, glorious thing it is. But no doubt, you and I all have been hurt by others who have failed to love us. Even in this room. Failed by our brothers and our sisters because they haven't loved us. But, and, we, and we know the hurt that that involves. And we know how we yearn to be loved deeply, to be known truly. And it draws us back to the beautiful truth that Leviticus has been setting up for us over and over again. That God's people are first loved by God. There is one who loves you perfectly. There's one who does not let you down. Yes, in this life, love will always be a messy thing among God's people. It's never going to be perfect. There's there's no perfect community here and now. It's always going to be difficult, but you can know in the midst of it, you are loved by the creator of heaven and earth. You've been redeemed, rescued. All of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ can know you stand cleansed as that goat took all the sins of the people of Israel out into the wilderness. And as it was, the other goat was sacrificed upon the altar and the blood sprinkled upon the temple to cleanse it and cleansing thereby all of the people of Israel of their sins. So cleansed are you. So far as the east is from the west are your sins. And God remembers them no more. For he set his love on his people from eternity past. The love that we can show is is but a, a... dim glimmer of the love that we have in Jesus Christ. And it is only knowing that love of Jesus Christ that propels us to love others. Apart from that, we can't love others. Everything we do will be tinged with selfishness in some way or another. But knowing we've been loved, we can now pursue one another. We can now care for one another. We can can love one another as ourselves knowing and resting in Christ and all that Leviticus is pointing us to in our Savior. That is the only soil that will allow us to grow in real love together for one another, for others. Not just an outward appearance of love, but being changed to the core by Christ. So as we look to Christ, we can love our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. We can pursue holiness. You and I, we can love our neighbors as ourselves. Let us do this together and look to the Lord in prayer. Father, what a joy it is to know that we are loved and now you propel us to love others. It is no longer a burden to do this. What a joy it is. We have been the vilest of people. We have been loved by you. We did not deserve it. We did not earn it. But you've loved us while we were dead in sin. Christ died for the ungodly. And so, Father, grow our hearts. Grow us in our ability to love others. May we be a community that is known by our love for one another. May your spirit be at work in us to enable us 
not just to think upon these things, but to live these things as the gospel takes root in our hearts more and more every day. Enable us this week to love our neighbors as ourselves. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.